Hey everybody, welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Tatsuo! <laughs> my, na- <laughs> my name is Jared and I'm joined here by the classic three. We got Ryan. Hey film fans. And joining us back from the dead is Austin. What up? I only said back from the dead because he didn't join us last time uh, when we covered Network. But uh, today, we are covering uh, the Patreon poll winner. So uh, for those of you who aren't patrons at WisecrackPlus.com, we had a poll, asked people what they wanted us to cover next. I submitted two films, Ryan submitted two films, Austin submitted two films, and everyone and these two guys were a bunch of losers because my film <laughs> won. Thank you, Ryan. Thank I feel you. like you my totally cheated, My film won, though. and it was you, Akira. You totally cheated, though. It's like superhero film or anime film. What do you think's going to win? Fuck you, man. Next time I'm well, we should have we should hey, be man. talking about Starship Troopers right now. Let's be no, honest. No, that lost. I know. But you know what? It this got is, second. Uh, all right. Yeah, I, you guys better not be hating on. No, this you movie just poached. You just poached for popularity votes. You didn't actually pick a film that you. Well, wanted. that's what that's I was true. trying that's to do. True. I was trying he, to poach for popularity votes. I spent a long time trying to figure out what would be more most popular. And goddammit, human sentiment. Look, dude, you can't blame me. Popular. Nobody knows the audience better than I do. This is what I live. I live and breathe day in day out. So you can't be giving me that shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so today we're talking about Akira, or Akira. Either way, it's probably wrong. Uh, The 1988 (laughs) film written and directed by Katsuhiro Tomo, starring Mitsuo Iwata, Nozimu Sasuke, and Mami Koyama. Um, But before we get into people's thoughts about this movie... I uh, want to thank everybody who's been giving us reviews on iTunes. So right now we're at 468 reviews. Oh, shit. I want to do something special when we hit 500. So if you guys continue to give us reviews, what do you guys want to do at 500? I was thinking maybe we would do like a really bad movie. Like <laughs> That's the reward? <laughs> maybe. I don't know. What do you think? You think we should? I like it. You want to dress and drag for the 500? Do, do, do another Ryan? baby? Do another uh, boss baby? <laughs> uh, we don't need to do two on the boss baby. <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I'm saying the boss baby as a, <laughs> you know as a bad yeah. movie. Oh, well, we've already done it. Now, I'm thinking, I'm like, not... doing something like what I consider the to be the worst movie of all time, pound for pound. Southland Tales? Is Southland Tales. So I would love to do that. <laughs> I mean, I'm down. Uh, all right, guys. So I uh, want to give a shout out to some of the awesome fans who have uh, spent time out of their day to give us a review on iTunes. This is from Chillaxed18. He said, uh, these guys know their stuff, and it's highly entertaining. Also, when are you guys doing Kill Bill or any Quentin Tarantino movie? Soon, my good friend. Question. That's a very good question. Maybe that's what we should do at 500. You want to... I mean, I don't know if everyone's going to be excited about that, but yeah, let's th- let's think of a super special All event. Right. Okay, we'll think, we'll, we'll think of something. All right, this is from Amelia Dutch. She said, "If you love movies and philosophy, you'll love this podcast." I'm also 14, so nobody wants to talk to me about movies. Whoa. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear that young people listen to this. I thought only, awesome. I thought young people only watched uh, Fortnite streams. Yeah, thank thank, thank you, you, Amelia. Uh, all right, so this is from The Whining. He says, it's like a book club, but with films. And without an awkward cohort, you have to meet with in person as you passively discuss <laughs> a shallow romance novel or poorly made quiche. Thank okay. you, The Whining. <laughs> anyway. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was that was awesome. Uh, this one is from Ivanovich. He says, this podcast discusses movies and how they discuss and represent society, if at all. Uh, and this one is from Airplane Pigeon, says Wisecrack at its best. I appreciate that. So without further ado, once again, if you guys have uh, the time, a review on iTunes would mean a lot to us. We'll do something special for 500. But want to move on to talking about Akira. Ryan, what do you think about this movie? What was it like the first time you're watching it? What's it like revisiting it? Um, well, the first time I saw it was in, I want to say, college. And um, I definitely basked in the... What the fuckness of the movie? I, you know, it washed over me, and every moment I was like, "Wow, I don't know what's going on, really," but I really enjoy uh, looking at this. 
Now I've seen it a lot of times. Honestly, this viewing didn't really do much for me, Jared. Really? Yeah, I think I've seen it too much. I, it's one of those, I mean, this isn't really a knock on the movie because I feel like you should really only judge the movie on the first time you see it. I mean, n- not every movie is made for rewatching, and I feel like this one is one of those where, you know, five times is probably enough. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I, I do. I definitely. It's an amazing piece of animation work, and yeah, I'm excited to hear what y'all say. The meaning of this movie is <laughs> okay. Austin, what about you? This is my first time ever seeing this movie. Woo! I oh, know. cool. I, uh, I've never been. I haven't been like into the otaku thing so much. It just wasn't really my space. It just wasn't really my world, you know? Uh, but I had a buddy who was a huge Japanophile, and then I've got, like, a couple other buddies that have been really into, I guess, the otaku subculture or culture, whatever, whatever, you, however you define it. And so I've been slowly introducing myself, and I feel like this is, like, the culmination of my education, you know? It's like, it's like now, moving forward, I'll be able to kind of, like, do a deep dive. Like, all my survey information is done. I understand it. Now it's time to just go into like more deep dive studies. I thought it was fucking fantastic. And and it really also helped me kind of understand a lot of other sci-fi movies that I, you can clearly see were inspired by this film. Like Chronicle, like The Matrix, even films like Annihilation I, I saw in this film. So I thought it was absolutely marvelous. You're a big uh, Miyazaki fan. You did the research. Uh, you produced our Miyazaki video. So yeah, well, and you, so I mean, and so, a lot of his films predated this film. And so right. I actually watched a lovely a couple of film essays, video essays that I will tweet out because I don't remember what the name of them are right now. But I will tweet them out because they were on uh, Akira or Akira um, and its legacy and the 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 kind of like golden age of anime that was in the 80s, the mid to the late 80s, which this is kind of viewed as a, as a, it's almost like a, I guess a hinge film. It's a culmination of that, but then it also kind of initiates a new phase in so many ways. So there are these really lovely video essays um, from some some people talking about that. And I thought it was really kind of amazing to learn about the, the prehistory. And then they spent like 8 billion yen on this fucking movie. So it's like, holy shit, man. <laughs> this was just well, a different, it, it came out of nowhere, man. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, the first time I saw this movie was in high school and similar to Ryan. This is actually the first anime movie I ever saw. Okay. This was... Um, Mine was I, spirited away. Yeah, I mean, I think I just looked on IMDb. I wanted to know, but, you know, the anime craze and right. uh, everyone was talking about this movie. So I went out to Hollywood Video, if mm. you remember what that mm. is. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. The good old days. And I rented Akira and I sat at home and I watched it and... You know, I feel like there's a stage in your life when sometimes you don't know what you just watched, but you like that you don't know what you just yeah. watched. You're like, it must have been very profound, but uh, <laughs> uh, I liked it. And then I don't think I saw it again until we did like the Earthling Cinema on it like couple, like two years ago, and I liked it then. But this viewing actually was great for me. It's actually mm. the opposite of Ryan. I felt like this is the first time I was actually really able to sit down and appreciate it. Do you do you prefer there's so much information, or do you prefer dub? When you're watching, uh, actually, that's a good point because this is the first time I watched it subbed instead of dubbed. Because mm-hmm. you know, back in like the Hollywood video days, they only carried the dubbed version, so you couldn't even. There was no choice back then. Right. God, I feel so old. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Uh, so I watched it subbed for the first time, and I don't know if it was that, but also there's this world is so alive and so well thought out. And I kind of felt like I was watching sci-fi techno noir Les Misérables. Without without oh, yeah. the singing, Go on. obviously, because I felt I'm like it you. was in, 
it was like this culture that is on the brink of collapse with all these revolutionary factions and everything. And uh, you're seeing so many different, you have like the, the military, these corrupt capitalists, you have the revolutionary figures, you have biker gangs, you get this amazing macro or bird's eye view of this incredibly and beautifully animated society. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I thought that was amazing. I really connected with the dynamic between Tetsuo and Kaneda this time. Um, and the fucking sound design is so yeah, good. And the music, part. the music, like the music when when Tetsuo is, he's having those uh, visions of like the, the bear uh, crawling up on his bed. And like you hear, it's so creepy. The music is so creepy. It was captivating. I was on the edge of my seat. Now, granted, we talk a lot about how it matters the state of mind that you're in if you're going to enjoy a movie or not and like i think i think i'm a morning movie guy sit me down with a cup of coffee in the morning and mm. i will and I, and that's when movies hit me the most i don't think i think i've watched like five movies ever before noon in my life <laughs> really dude that's yeah. my that's my new thing man <laughs> movies in the morning with a cup of coffee anyway yeah, so sounds marvelous yeah yeah All right, let's go into a recap. So, 31 years after World War III, in a post-nuclear Neo-Tokyo, Kaneda, the leader of a bike gang and his friend Tetsuo, are pursuing a rival gang when Tetsuo accidentally crashes into an escape government experiment, a child mutant with telekinetic powers. Kaneda is processed through the justice system where he starts macking on a revolutionary named Kei, who is part of the group that tried to free the child. Meanwhile, Tetsuo is kept at the military hospital where he's studied alongside the other mutant children by someone known only as the Colonel. Tetsuo's apparently unique powers are compared to that of a godlike being known as Akira, whose vast energy is said to have started World War III. As Tetsuo's powers intensify, Kaneda joins Kei and the revolutionaries to break him out. Mad with power and believing it to be the only way to stop his pain, Tetsuo breaks out of the compound to find Akira. When the Supreme Executive Council decides to oust the colonel, he stages a coup, seizes control of the government, and arrests all members of the council. The mutant children possess Kei and try to stop Tetsuo from releasing Akira. Tetsuo opens the chamber holding Akira and sees only containers of his organs and bodily fluids that were meant to be studied by future generations. Kaneda shows up to fight Tetsuo, and when a satellite weapon takes away Tetsuo's arm, he replaces it with a metallic arm and starts growing uncontrollably until he becomes a towering abomination of flesh and metal. The three children pray to bring back Akira, who bathes the city in a destructive white light, where Kaneda experiences memories from Tetsuo and the three children's childhoods with Akira. Kaneda and Kei are spared, while Tetsuo joins Akira and the other children in a formation of a new being— Perhaps a new universe. End of movie. All right, guys. So let's start off with just what is this movie about? (laughs) Um, Now, Ryan, I'm actually curious just hear your initial thoughts uh, before, because I actually did a bit of reading uh, and a bit of research on here, and I've pulled two articles that have quite a bit to say, but I'm curious as to if you just had to take a wild guess or at least what you take away from it. Well, it's hard to say that now because I've worked on the Earthling and stuff. So oh, okay, Garrus Fermi sure. Lloyd told me a little bit about what it was about, and sure. I mean, you kind of get the whole uh, what do you call it paranoia of the uh, the atom bomb that yeah. you know the Japanese people went through. You kind of that that kind of runs through the movie. Um, but yeah, what is it about? I mean, it's about transcending your hu- humanity. Yeah, it's about. I mean, I think that's probably the best way I can describe it. I mean. Mm-hmm. 
I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> what about you, Austin? <laughs> so this is just like a, a funny anecdote. I was out having drinks one time with a homie of mine, and we were talking about like post-apocalyptic depictions in film and whatnot. And he's like, you know, it's always like these barren wastelands. Like look at like the Mad Max films or like The Road and stuff like that. He's like, but we actually have experienced an apocalyptic event in human history, and it was the atomic bomb. He's like, so if you want to understand post-apocalyptic worlds, he's like, look at fucking Japan today. And I was like... Oh, that's actually a really interesting point. I'd never thought about that before. And what is the post-apocalyptic landscape? It's like fucking Tokyo where people are plugged into their desks for 16 hours a day and they sleep in these pods and then they go back to work the next day. And it's like a world that is very different from what I guess we are accustomed to in the West and what kind of it's really anywhere else in the world. And this film wait, kind wait, of wait, makes wait. me think about that. Go ahead. What is the pot? What does them working long days have to do with the Hiroshima atom bomb, though? It, I mean, it, just what are the consequences of an apocalyptic event? I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, you, you know, think it, that, it, that that there's cause? There's a causality relationship. To I that? mean, we can only speculate. I mean, people definitely look to Japan and say things of like you know the the weird eccentricities of their culture, or perhaps their really low birth rate, and they might say, "Wow, the bomb really." screwed with their culture but it seems it, it, like it, an it, offensive <laughs> joke it's not a joke i don't think it's a joke right. i think it's like yeah. hey like what do you, what happens when you com when you literally threaten a nation with annihilation because you drop these two bombs that at that time i mean yeah that, that literally that's the craziest thing i forget sometimes how insane of a weapon a nuclear bomb is to drop on a city i mean hundreds of thousands of people at the snap of a finger die and like that's got to and then there's you. a whole other part of the the uh, culture that's poisoned, and then also right. just like people don't often remember just the um, the mental effect not only of all these people dying, but also of you know Hirohito, who was not only the emperor, but he was like god to these people, and mm. to have your god basically not necessarily dethroned, but to have uh, what was the general at the time came over and basically made Hirohito uh, denounce his own his own celestial status and uh, basically say that, oh, you know, this is no longer an empire. Like, can you imagine? Right. That's that. I mean, for a nation yeah. that has, has was kind of closed off, was a little bit more traditionally rooted uh, isolationist policies and principles to not just experience a death of God, a death of everything, a death of meaning, a death of value, a death of economy, a death of power. I mean, everything goes away. Uh, I think that when you look at Japan today, you have to think of it as kind of they hit the reset button in a lot of ways or the reset right. button and I think imposed that, upon them. And, and the bomb's got to be like an existential threat, too. I mean, it's not 100%. just like – yeah, it's like in the blink of an eye, it was gone. So I, I want to just focus on what Austin just said because the reset button thing I think is super important to this movie. So in this movie, we see a culture that is on the brink of collapse. Uh, not only are the revolutionary unrests intensifying – but um, there are groups of religious zealots out in the street that are begging for Akira to come back to simply to essentially wipe the slate clean. And I found it really interesting that there's a character I don't remember what I don't know what his name is, but he basically plays like the fat old rich capitalist dude. Yeah. And even he says 
In all respects, this city is saturated. It's like an overripe fruit, and within it is a new seed. We only need to wait for the wind, which will make it fall, the wind called Akira. Mm. So it's like even not only the religious zealots and the poor people and the revolutionaries, but even the guy who's rich realizes that there needs to be this accelerating force, that Akira is a destructive force that almost needs to happen in order to rid the world of whether it's ridding the world of this decadence that they're experiencing or they just are, you know, desiring a fresh start. Is, is that when he calls everyone like these young hedonists and, and whatnot when they're walking yes. on the bridge? And then you see yeah. – Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really interesting to me because obviously there – in our Miyazaki video, we talked about Shinto religion. But there's also a rich tradition of Buddhism in Japan, Pure Land Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, various different expressions of it, right? And – one of the things that is a central tenet of Buddhism is this uh, – it's the Four Noble Truths or uh, – yeah, the Four Noble Truths and then that leads to the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Four Noble Truths are that life is suffering, that the cause of suffering is attachment, that there is a way out of this suffering and then the fourth one is that here is the way out of it, right? And this idea of like rampant hedonism, that it would be disgusting and that Akira would be the sort of solution, it's almost like saying – this the solution is that part three of the four noble truths it's the third one that the, here's the solution the solution is uh this kind of leveling out this this cessation of all of these people's attachments and pleasures in light of this that there's like a degradation of life but that somehow we can come back to uh a more in-tuned or attuned expression of life and that akira is that event that will allow that so yeah, there's some interesting religious themes, I think, that are going on through this film, implicitly, maybe not explicitly. So you're saying that the film perhaps expresses a desire to kind of go, is it back to a more, because I think that this movie actually is like, like radically ahead of not, maybe not its time, but radically ahead of most ma uh, mainstream modes of thought in that, like he's, it's not just transforming out of the, uh, a current cultural mode or an economic mode or some sort of situation like that. It's literally transforming into a different plane of existence. Like yes. at the end of the movie, like it's not that – it's not even – like so we talked about in our Videodrome podcast, we talked about a movie called Tetsuo the Iron Man, which was made a couple – Hell fucking yeah. Yeah, which was made a couple <laughs> years off, after Akira, and actually the name of the movie is a reference to Akira. Mm. And that movie is about kind of this – uh, technology warship, kind of this merging of the man and the machine. But I think that Akira toys with this, but it actually goes past it. Mm. Uh, so this is from a, a paper by Ger Ger Gerald Miller called To Shift to a Higher Structure. And uh, he says that uh, at the end, Tetsuo is transformed into a pure plane of imminence, mm. imminent to nothing other than himself, for he has merged his identity with the totality of the universe, hence allowing him to experience a true state of freedom. So I think this is so interesting because we can look at so many other... If, uh, well, that's not me. It's Gerald. So thank you, Gerald. Uh, <laughs> but I think we can look at this movie and say that uh, it's not about, you know, how do we balance uh, humanity and technology? How do we balance Japan's changing landscape and changing identity? It really is almost more universal than that. The, the balance issue would be the more Shinto interpretation, probably. Uh, right. Whereas... The Buddhist one is the cessation of attachment to all of these ephemeral material things and then 
that plane of imminence that Gerald references is that kind of release into moksha or nirvana. It's liberation. It's it's that idea of you have overcome, you have transcended, you have gone beyond all of these worldly things, and you are actually connected with the totality that that simply is. And I think there's something in in this film that explores that, you know. And this is why it reminded me of Annihilation a little bit. Remember we talked about Annihilation as being like the abundance of life, almost like a pathological cancerous growth mm. mm-hmm. you see that when 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 tetsuo is like uh t- transforming into that as garrick's called it uh, uh the, the giant, the giant testicle. testicle yes <laughs> um when he's turning into this giant testicle it's almost like there's an overgrowth of his muscles an overgrowth of his veins an overgrowth of his uh, of his bones everything is kind of growing too much there's too much abundance of life that's kind of taking place which which could have resonance too with maybe like the post atom bomb radiation deformation that people experienced and it oh, okay. also and it also could have to do with this idea of like just an overgrowth or an overabundance of of life it's like there's just too much that's bursting forth that a human body can't harness or can't contain there's too much power and in order He's to transcending yeah, yeah he, exactly and then you can't do that in our material bodies and in order to overcome the pressures that would come along with that you have to just simply release yourself into the the plane of imminence so i want to bring that mode that train of thought to the way that the movie begins and ends the movie begins with a nuclear blast and it's that bathing in white light, it's completely silent, and then the movie ends with essentially a very similar thing, but we're, and it also creates destruction, but at the end of the movie, we're meant to contextualize it in a much more positive way. I actually think that's one of the interesting things about the movie is mm-hmm. that the destruction is actually, like, cathartic and, like, positive and, like, fetishized in a way. Yeah. Um mm. And that's one of the things that makes the movie like kind of so kind of fucked up, dangerous in a sexy way. You know what I'm saying? Like there is a sense of like, all right, we're in this shitty situation. Society is just breaking at the brims. And uh, and it's because of destruction we got here. And now the only thing we can do is like a different kind of creation and destruction where we leave behind our physical bodies and kind of become part of this infinite flow of energy that binds all things together. Mm. Well, yes. <laughs> um, but uh, is Tetsuo um, like a – do you think he's supposed to be seen as a good guy at the end? So I, the like, second, is that a good thing that you want to aspire to be? I think that one of the really like special things about this movie is you it's you, it's almost impossible to discern good guys and bad guys. I don't really I, think I there are. Yeah, because even yeah. Kanada is kind of a dick, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Everyone's a dick. Everyone sucks. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder. I wonder what you guys think. I kind of thought that Tetsuo was a cautionary tale. You know that it's it's Japan is in the eighties, experiencing this massive financial boom. There, the Japanese stock index reaches its pinnacle just like one or two years later. That so, and and they're they're transitioning to tech and finance and all of these various other areas of industry that are really booming. And so it's kind of like, hey guys. The filmmaker saying, hey, guys, don't get so caught up in the power that we're experiencing now and remember who we are. Remember our traditions. Remember our religious connection. Uh, if if you follow the path of Tetsuo, that's embracing too much power. If you follow the path of the general, that's like military imperialism. If you follow the path of business, that's greed. Uh, the religious crazies are like the millennial movements that were a millennial. 
Millen, what is it? Millenarian, <laughs> millenarian, the millenarian movements that were so going on. So there's like on the, in, the new religions in Japan. In Japan, yeah, in the 80s, okay. and then you've got um, allusions to maybe even the Japanese Red Army, which was, uh, I guess it d- depends on who you ask, a, a revolutionary movement or a terrorist organization. I don't, I don't really know much about uh, how, how to classify it, but you've got all these various factions that are that are that are present at the time, and he's kind of saying these are all the pitfalls, and even Tetsuo is is a potential pitfall, but what he does is he eventually realizes that he can escape all of that by not in a going back, but remembering or reconnecting with the truth of reality, which is that with that the guy was it Gerald? Fuck, I forgot his name already. Talked about in the Yeah, it was it was Gerald, but I guess my question is does he really come upon that realization or is he like saved by Akira? I mean, but see, this is the thing. We are so obsessed with agency in the West, right? That, like, we have mm-hmm. overcome something, that we've learned something. Whereas Eastern philosophical <laughs> orientations are much less concerned with agency as being the primary factor. It's more about fate. It's more about the, the, the cycle. It's a, a circular notion of time in a lot of ways. I mean, this is what reincarnation is, is you're reincarnated in this circular path because you can't break this cycle of of dukkha so it's samsara which is sweet zero personal responsibility sounds awesome <laughs> <laughs> so just a cycle dude i mean so Fucking it's kinda, a man. but see this is him breaking the cycle this is him right he's, he's released into something new to start something completely afresh and right universe. but he didn't do it that's kind of our thing is like like he he, he didn't make the choice to do it he just kind of like he gets caught up in the white but, but, but austin's point is that through a certain eastern philosophical it doesn't matter yeah, right. I mean, it's like because we want to reward people so much with like, ah, you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, you know, pat you on the back. You're a good dude. You get the reward of becoming CEO or whatever. And not that that doesn't have status in other human cultures. Of course it does. But there's there's another element to it that I think that this film sort of explores. Well, I, 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 I get what you're saying, but I I, I guess what I – my question or the, the way I'm coming at it is like just the sense that this is a story we're being told. It's a hero's journey, you know, of sorts. Like so – Usually in the in the formula, there's yeah, but that's a very Western formula, and exactly. So point taken that 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 just don't even look at it through that lens. Yeah, or or look at the tension, like 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 I think that's really interesting actually to say okay, like was he resisting it? Did he hate it? Did he not want to be a the, part of it, or does he just? Kind I of think like... there's a really good argument to be made that the colonel's the protagonist. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, because he really just has the well-being of people in mind. Yeah, I mean, he's just trying. I mean, he's, he's just trying. He, to get, he's keep kind things. of the one with the most agency. He's kind of the most aware of what's going on. He seems to be concerned with saving people. He's a hero. He goes into the giant testicle monster, like you know, <laughs> by himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, but once again, I think that the movie is special because the protagonists and antagonists are all just kind of blurred together. But yeah. I do want to transition to talking about Japan specifically because I think that's kind of the most prevalent reading of this movie. So I'm going to be citing from an article called Panic Sites by Susan Napier. So on one level, and this is a, a lot of what we discussed in our Battle Royale podcast, uh, and Napier says that Akira highlights some of the most obvious problems of contemporary Japan. Aimlessness of youth. We talked about that uh, with Battle Royale. Especially outsiders, such as motorbikers, the repression of resistance in both schools and the workplace, and the increasing power of new religions. So uh, Austin just spoke about this. Um, so uh, one symbol that she talks about that I find interesting is the Olympic Stadium. So 
Mm. She says that the architecture in the movie exemplifies a rejection of the past. She says that interestingly, and I found this interesting too, is that there's almost nothing recognizably Japanese about Neo-Tokyo. You know, when you think about old... A bunch of Japanese people there. There are Japanese people there, but... So in this paper, Napier talks about uh, like the the progression of disaster films in Japan. So we think about the original disaster film is Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> exactly, Godzilla. So in Godzilla, you know, everyone knows Godzilla is kind of a stand-in for the bomb. And in the original Godzilla movie and a couple other sequels, you see Godzilla and he's trampling on these very traditional Japanese looking buildings and we can all mm, see the metaphor right. of of like of the bomb trampling on their culture. But in this, there really isn't um yeah, it doesn't there's there's no the the destruction is not destroying their culture. The culture's gone. You know, there's no sense of that. Mm. Uh the Olympic Stadium is an interesting one because it's an exact replica of the one that was built for the 1964 Olympics. So according to Napier, it becomes a clear reference to the generation before uh, the, the generation that came out during the time of the movie. The generation that built the original Olympic Stadium is a proud symbol of the new Japan. And as Tetsuo rips mm. it apart, there's this sense of excitement. For those who care about the past, this orgy can be highly disturbing. But for, you know, we talked about the big generation gap in Japan uh, but for the uh, you know the the people who were kids in the eighties and the new Japanese generation, it's like yeah, fuck that, like tear mm -hmm. it down, you know, like we don't need the conservative, corporate minded, corporate driven Japanese culture that came right out of post World War II. You know, they're trying to forge their own identity. And she, one of her biggest arguments is that why the, that's why the character of Tetsuo is such a a youth symbol for the Japanese is that the youth like really saw him as just this force of Tetsuo. Exactly. <laughs> uh, saw him as this uh, this symbol of of uh, of of new power that they had, that they could choose to do what they wished with. So she says Tetsuo's no holds barred display of powers ultimately uh, both frightening and exciting suggestion a new Japan and a new world. So this goes to more to what I was saying about Godzilla. Japan has gone a long way in almost four decades from the first Godzilla film, from victim of powerful outside forces to becoming a powerful force in its own right. Uh, at the same time, this absence of any sort of past, be it architecturally or generation generationally, the film suggests that Japan has achieved this status through writing off its own history. And I think that we can say that just by the setting of the film, but once again, with the ending being such a radical shift into like post-human, we can see that this film does suggest a like this it's like very it's not a, it's very misanthropic man humanity has no fucking chance let's just go to the next stage <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um I, I don't know i heard that uh, i think it might have because that's panic sites is that article right yeah yeah i think one of the video essays that uh that i watched cited that one as well so um it, i guess it must be a pretty popular piece that um Mm -hmm. that, that people are talking about one of the things that that the that people were talking about in these essays was that that this film is a in, in many ways a reminder to a generation that had no attachment to the sort of immediate post-world war ii landscape right that people born in the let's say late 60s early 70s they they kind of they were existing in this plane of ignorance almost and that if you were a 15, 16 year old at this time and you're, you know, kind of one of those rebellious utes, uh, then 
then you sort of you don't get it like you just don't quite get it and this film in a lot of ways is like hey like pay attention to our history but don't fetishize the history but pay attention to it know who you are where you came from and then let's kind of move beyond that in in a lot of ways do you see that that might be something that's in there as well i can see that for sure yeah definitely <laughs> I, hope, I if you if they start using that i hope they pay on. you for it yeah it better um all right you guys want to talk about body horror oh hell yeah this movie is so gross yeah uh I was surprised at how much blood and shit there was. Like, it's fucking oh, violent. Yeah. Blood and sexuality. I mean, I guess, because, you know, Americans, we think of animated movies, if you grow up as being Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and Cinderella and Pinocchio and shit. And those are all very family friendly. Whereas Japanese animation is for everybody. It's it's adult movies, they've got kids films. I mean, there's no limitation on like the demographic. And so I I didn't I didn't expect it to be so fucking like Quentin Tarantino in animated form. I think the the most disturbing part to me and this isn't I mean it is body horror, but at the beginning when the military shoots the revolutionary who's trying to save the kid, mm-hmm. just watching his his body get riddled with bullets and how much blood there is, that that was that was, that was that was tough to watch. The one yeah. where the guy gets shot in the face in the tunnel by Oh, when K kills K kills him. Yeah, I was like, "Jesus, he just got shot in the face." <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. In general, like for some reason when I when I've seen this movie in the past, I really was mostly focusing on I guess the violence, the sci-fi, just trying to figure out like what is Akira, what is going on, why does he have these powers, but I thought one of the most rewarding things about this viewing was just once again the socio-political landscape of Neo Tokyo. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how many things that they were able to include in here. Just all the different fact it felt very alive. I felt like even more so than Blade Runner. I felt like I got a a really interesting compelling idea of what it's like to live in this world see Mm. i i i would disagree with that blade runner i feel like i get a much better i mean probably just because it's live action maybe but also this you know there's lots of scenes where you're just kind of hiding or 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 there or it's just like two characters in a room together you know and then you do get those brief glimpses of neo tokyo that do kind of paint the full picture yeah but yeah, like I, I don't know. I think Blade Runner paints a better picture. See, I thought it was so fascinating because it shows you. This is one of the things that's so amazing about animation that that CGI tries to do, but for some reason it's it's not as immersive. And I think it's because I get it's that juxtaposition between the live action human and then the computer generated world that the human is in that sometimes takes me out of it. Whereas this is just a complete animated world, so there's a consistency. But at the same time. It's not bound to the same laws of physics that live action films are. And I love that. I like when his arm gets shot off and he fucking flies into space. And then all of a sudden it turns into this mechanical arm with these nuts and bolts and wires that all come together. And you have this city that like the the ground is literally opening up and people are being sucked into it or explosions are happening. But they're, they're so much more dramatic. The blood is so much more dramatic. You know, when the dogs get shot, the amount of blood that is mm. splattered on the fucking so yeah, let's, you, let's not bring that up. How'd you like that, Jared? <laughs> Jared's no, notorious wasn't, wasn't, for hating. You know, it, it, you know it's, it's a testament to how good this movie is that a dog got killed and I two, continued watching. Two, yeah. two of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Austin. No, but, um, but you know what I mean? It kind of... It, it, it was so... 
it's so inventive what you can do with animation. It makes me kind of look at CGI and say, like, I get what people are trying to do with a lot of these over over computer generated images, but there's almost something refreshing about watching just a pure animated film because I don't know, there's a consistency to their like craziness, to their ability to transcend the physical laws that I just find really fascinating. Yeah, for for this movie and Miyazaki, I they're the only two filmmakers where yeah, I sit there and I'm in awe of just not what I'm watching, but just like how did they think of it? How did he visually create this and then get a team of animators to accomplish it, accomplish it, and also make it fit into a really interesting, unique story? I mean, mm. yeah, I agree. I mean, luckily they had the manga that it was based off of. That's true. You know, Miyazaki I, usually is his own. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. It's, Most of them, uh, I think. Oh, it's all original. I think um, I think there were something like 2,000 pages of writings that that they went into shooting with this movie. And they had to, to kind of dwindle it down. But that uh, – is it Otomu? Otomu? Otomo? Uh, he literally had Your like, guess is as good as mine. Yeah, he had like <laughs> 2,000 pages. Like can you imagine – with your Bible or your script or your binder and you walk into a production office and you're like, here you go. You slap down 2,000 pages of sketches and yeah. of drawings and of text and things like that. So, you know, they had I mean, to... You ob- can, but you yeah. can tell that that he, yeah, his brain was in this world because it's so well fleshed out. Mm. And it's never over the top. Like, it never holds your hand through it's it It's never too much. over the top? <laughs> well, in, in, in the sense that, like, we never... We never hear someone say, oh, the Acura World Renewal Movement believes in this. We never hear what exactly the structure of the government is. We don't really hear if yeah. this capitalist guy holding the briefcase full of money trying to get out of town, if he is corrupt. It's just done visually. Yeah. It's done through news reports that we see. Mm. Uh, there's never over-the-top exposition. I think maybe that's yeah, one of the reasons that. why this viewing was so rewarding for me because I'd seen it a couple times before. And it is quite dense. Uh, if you're really to uh, kind of reflect on all of the small details that happen in Neo Tokyo. Yeah, I kind of want to see the dubbed version now because I feel like I miss a little bit of the visuals by having to look down and then look up. Even though I mm. I, I watch a, a fair amount of foreign films, so I'm pretty good at just being able to look once and kind of taking a snapshot in my mind. But Nevertheless, there was so much going on and like some subtle things that I noticed in the animation that I thought were so lovely where there's the bit when – I think it's when Tetsuo uh, first runs into the little old guy, Takashi. Is that his name? Um, where, yeah, I think so. Where he crashes into him and he's laying on the ground and he's like reaching for help and there's like this slow pull in on him but the perspective on the ground changes like new cracks emerge on the ground as the camera is kind of moving in closer on him and there are like two fires burning in the background at different distances and so there's a perspective thing and i mean just the the skill and the attention to detail and and stuff like that was was so like replete that i feel like i missed some of it by by reading and i know some people there's like a debate right as like what's better dubbed or subbed and i don't i don't really know what the debate is like I'd be curious it just, to have people it, it, tell It us. just depends. Every some subs are, or the some dubs are great. Subs, man. Dubs uh, mostly. I mean, always not always. Subs for you, Ryan? Like, like so. I would say. Yeah, I never watch dubs. Dubs. First of all, we're all going to get shot for this conversation because there's no right answer. <laughs> that's the why I know. Like, subs. That's why well, I want to no, know. But, but, help, but help us. <laughs> subs. Subs are always better for live action. Always because there is a performer, and you know, like like you know, there's no disconnect between 
the person who's performing and their voice. You know, if you're watching uh-huh. Johnny Depp, it's his voice speaking. But with with animation, you know, like there's no. I I disagree. I think it's still the same. It's like you still. In the native language, ma- you, you're you're getting the inflections. Well, the nat- okay, and native stuff, la- You know, like no, like- but but I mean, it's a it's a cartoon. The cartoon doesn't have a native language. The cartoon you just fill whatever what words are in Japanese. their mouth. Japanese. No, I'm saying I'm saying, but I'm just saying. Okay, the Johnny Depp doesn't the performers. Yeah, Johnny in the Depp doesn't Akira. speak Japanese. But this character, this cartoon that just moves its mouth, it doesn't speak any language. It speaks whatever language you make it. You're talking about physically, practically that you can physically put their mouth in. Well, physically, I'm just talking about performance in general. I mean, if I mean, look, I mean, if they're not going to go back too. and fix the way the mouths move, then obviously, yeah, subs are better because it's just better. But let's say they had the budget to actually change the way the mouths move to English, what would be the difference? The I mean, difference the is that you have Matt the... Damon's um, voice coming out of some Japanese dude, <laughs> and and it's like this is weird, you know? Like, okay, like, but, let's, but fine. Let's... If it was a Jap- uh, like a cultural Japanese guy, but if it was He's like a Miyazaki, away. fine, but if there was a Miyazaki, a different Miyazaki movie where it was like talking rabbits or something. Well, rabbits don't speak English or Japanese. So Maybe what does if you're talking about animals, then we can talk. <laughs> <laughs> but even then, if it was if it was an originally a Japanese fucking squirrel, I want to hear the Japanese. Even if it's a Japanese squirrel. Yes. Okay. All right. No, well, I, I kind of I'm inclined. I'm just saying. To agree some with people Jared. say. I've gotten people have been pissed off at me for using an some, like for Full Metal Alchemist for our Full Metal Alchemist video, which is one of my favorite videos. People were pissed that I used the subs. They said, "Why use the subs? The dubs are just as good." And I was like, well, "You it's motherfucker, a video game, you have though, right? No, it's an anime." Okay, I said, "You motherfucker, you know how much work I put in trying to get the fucking subs." And so then I just gave up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to kind of agree with Jared's point, but I also understand Ryan's point, and that's why I'm torn because. My point one, is better. At one level, I don't want to have to look down and I don't want to have to read in an animated film because I'm thinking, okay, yeah, what's the point? Like the character's voice is sort of secondary to the the rest of the aesthetic. But then I'm kind of like, but wait, if it's Japanese, there is something important about hearing the Japanese language maybe that would change something just even at like a subtle level that there, there, hearing Johnny that. Depp is not the same. There's that, but it's also just so distracting for me to to if there's any subtle like unsync at all, I'm just like, God damn it. Like Yeah, I hear give you. Give me the subs. Plus there's the whole question of translation, you know, sometimes exactly. sometimes the amount of time you have to make the mouth move doesn't sync with the amount of words that you need to translate. I'm the, honestly the idea. surprised you're into the dubs, Jared. I'm not into them. I'm just saying I mean look, as I said, I watched the subs this time and it was the best viewing. Okay. So sometimes better, but I'm, I'm saying it's just not an. It's not like there are some animes like Full Metal Alchemist. The dubs are just as good. We should stop. We should stop this conversation before no one ever listens to this podcast again. <laughs> body horror, David body, body horror, uh, Videodrome, The Fly. All right, so body horror. One of the coolest shots in the whole movie is like the second shot where we see blood or like bodily organs and then it dissolves into the image of Neo Tokyo a mm-hmm. h- highly technological technologically advanced metropolitan city um I, you know, we we we've talked about how technology invades the body in this movie like Tetsuo the Iron Man uh and how that kind of can change identity and more to the discussion points we were talking about earlier about uh Japan's vast and quick technological processes, whereas the economic process perhaps compromising their identity. But once again, I just love the conflation of just flesh, blood, technology, mm. 
and moving past all of it to just energy. <laughs> right. The, the, the bright light in yeah. the galaxy. Yeah. You know what? One of the, I was going to ask real quick, in terms of, because I kind of mentioned it in my opening, but that this film was a huge influence on other sci-fi films moving forward. I mean, when I watched this, I immediately was like, holy fuck, Max Landis just stole Chronicle from Akira, you know? And, like, there there seems to be so many other films that Akira wasn't based off of Chronicle? No, no. Other way around. That was, a, that was a joke. Oh, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, like it's clear, right? Like it, it, it's so. Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure he would say that too. No, yeah, he 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 totally does say that. Like yeah, heavily influenced, blah blah blah. But yeah, uh, uh, but just the legacy yeah. in general that this film has had over sci-fi films. I feel like retroactively, I was like, oh my god, I kind of get so much of these other films now. Even films like The Matrix, you can see so much inspiration yeah. that is drawn from this film i feel like the character the 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 the, it's kind of become kind of a uh convention almost like the the character who gets supernatural powers and doesn't want them i feel like i've seen that before in something besides chronicle well not only that but chronicle there's that uh (laughs) dynamic between the kind of older brother figure and the kind of younger brother figure who always gets picked on and always needs saving. And then at the end, he's the one with the greater powers and, yeah. you know, he becomes power exactly. hungry and stuff like that. Mm. Um, anyway, before we sign off today, I want to spend some time reflecting on what do you guys think about if this movie ever gets remade? Is it just well, like, it's it, Leonardo DiCaprio has been trying to be re- I know he's been no, trying to. Take a, take a Watiti is attached to it right now to do it. And he said that no uh, it'll, I mean, he's filming right now in Prague, I think. But he is now the oh. official guy that's that's on. So Wait, but he's not filming the movie. He's filming something else. He's filming something else right now, right? He's but he, like Thor two or, or but uh, or but he's the one who's attached. I mean, they've gone through different names. They asked Jordan Peele, but I, he he turned it down to do his new Blumhouse project, which is filming right now. But Good call. yeah, but Waititi is attached to it right now. He he's the dude going forward. They're saying. You know, I'm the, actually excited the, about that prospect. I think he's a good man. I'm I'm very torn. On the one hand, like we saw what happened with Ghost in the Shell, sucked. Yeah, uh, but that director, who cares about him? This guy's cool. Man, I yeah, I don't know, man. I don't think this is going to be a challenge for anyone. Really? Do you think, I think that people can learn opportunity from the for a lot of people of these other films, though? Sure. I feel like this is one of those things that's like a mountain to adapt. Well, he because said he's not going to Ghost adapt in the, the Shell is. Wait, what? He's not. Oh, he's, he's not adapting gonna, the. He's comic. not going to adapt the film. He's going straight to the manga, and he's doing oh, that on well, purpose then I can't... because he thinks that the film is almost like a sacred piece that deserves its own individual legacy, and so he's going to draw much more on the the manga than he is on the film. Is what I he honestly. Said. Th- that's interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't think that's going to save him. I kind of think we're in a place where some texts are so holy that you just can't fuck with them. Like, for I don't think you guys are big video game nerds, but, like, the Final Fantasy VII remake has been supposedly being worked on for, like, six or seven years. I just think it's never going to come out, and I think that they're probably just like, you know what, people are going to hate this no matter what because it's just too holy. You, uh, just... No matter how good our our product is, that uh, people will find something perception. to complete about. 
I don't think that that's. About. I mean, look at like Grand Theft Auto or something. Every time it comes out, it's a blockbuster and it defies but those everyone's are new expectations. Things. Those are new things. It's not a complete remake of something else. With Final Fantasy VII, there's a story, there are characters, there's the way the story's told, there's the way it feels, the music, there's an element of nostalgia. Yeah. If it's compromised in any way, people are going to complain. With Grand Theft Auto, I mean, first of all, yeah, those games are all amazing, but they're telling a new story every time, and that grants a lot of leeway. Mm. Okay. I mean, one well, of the things that's interesting is he has uh, promised that he... And I don't think he's trying to just appease a crowd. I think he authentically believes that this is the way the film should be made, but he wants to cast Asian actors as the as the leads, as the teens. And so maybe that's another thing is, you know, there's a there, there are a couple of films and TV shows out right now with with Asian actors. And so maybe the other thing is finding the right cast, finding people who have enough big enough star to be able to 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 be in this movie. So, I mean, maybe it's a long-term project, like not 2020, but like 2025 or something. But nevertheless, I think he's trying to do it the right way. He's trying to base it off the manga. He's trying to have Asian actors in it. And he's trying to make sure that, uh, that he takes his time with it from the interview that I read in March. So, yeah, we'll I mean, it's weird. I, I watch it and I have that desire of like, man, this is so cool. I would love to see this world in a, like on a, on a different palette, but at the same time, Man, dude, what it a is, challenge! It's gonna. I agree. Whoever, I don't envy the person who gets the job done. But I, <laughs> yeah. I, I disagree that. I think it's gonna be an event. It's gonna be like, oh man, that this classic, you know, uh, anime movie is getting remade live action style. You know, it's like the Disney thing. They they're remaking literally every cartoon, and every time it's like, all right. You know, yeah, Jungle Book's sacred, but I want to see how they did it. But the, but there are so many ways that they can compromise with this. They can make it less violent. They can, like, make the ending bit clearer. You know, all these pressures are going to be placed on the studio system because this movie's going to cost a billion fucking dollars to make Neo Tokyo yeah. look awesome. You know, there's going to be... Those compromises might start adding up, and I don't want to be too negative about it. Of course, I'm going to be fucking excited as fuck to see it when it comes out, but man... <laughs> That's a job I would turn down. But here's the thing. Oh, I, I never can say his name right, but the Australian director or New Zealand director that he's talking about, um, he, that guy has been given a blank check to make Thor Ragnarok, mm -hmm. and he made it with practical effects and made, did something new, and I feel like that that they're using that template with Akira and be like, all Dude, right. Thor Ragnarok is good, but this is a whole different ball game. <laughs> right. I agree. Yeah. But I, 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 I'm hopeful, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All um, right, guys. Well, that's going to wrap it up for today. Uh, we don't have time for the mailbag. So uh, before we go, I uh, want to thank everybody. want to thank our sponsors. want to uh, thank everybody who's leaving us a review on iTunes. Did you guys think of something we're going to do for 500 reviews? Uh, not yet. Well, we got to give people the incentive. Well, uh, that's true. Yeah. When you we'll say a really for next bad week. film, like, what do you mean? Like, you mean like The Room? No, that one's played out. I kind of want to do... Well, first of all, I would really love to do that... Uh, that Christianity movie we're talking about, God's Not Dead. Because we talk about death of God theology a lot, you're a recovering evangelical, you studied uh, religion, I've heard Kevin Sorbo's in it, so yes, I, I think that could it. be fun. Disappointed! And, and, South, and Southland Tales is, uh, I think, the worst movie ever made, so I always <laughs> love talking about that. Can I say a comment on the, sure. on the, the live stream? Luis had an insightful comment about body horror. He said, body whore, it's what happens to my body after I ate Chipotle. Jesus. <laughs> just had, All right. Just had to say that. Cool. All right. Uh, so we're signing off. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. 
Uh, you can find me on this great website called YouTube.com, another one called Facebook.com, and you can look up Ryan Shorts, like shorts that you wear, or Ryan's Game Show, like a game show you watch. And I make cool stuff there all the time, every week. I love everyone on the internet, including you who you're listening to right now. Austin, what about you? Hey, wait, when when is your YouTube pilot coming out? I'm so excited for this one. Oh, the money show for Wisecrack? Yeah. I, I don't know. Is that up on Patreon so we, yet? It's, on, it's up on Patreon. If you guys want to see it, check out Wisecrack. Gotten good or bad reviews? Um, don't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, I won't tell you. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, people can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I host a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn, and you can find us on uh, Twitter or on Facebook or on iTunes or owls at dawn.com. Cool. Uh, unless we hit 500 next week, we are doing Batman v Superman. Get pumped, guys! Yeah. No, yay! Yeah. People have hey, that's people have been asking us to do it. People want they 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 want to hear about comic. All right, all right, all right. What's wrong with people? <laughs> no, people want comic book movies with ambition. People, that's what they want. Anyway, uh, sign it off. See you guys later. You can check me out at Wisecrack on Twitter. And until then, peace, guys. Tatsuo! Goodbye from Hollywood, California! Later.